This episode is brought to you by Jupiter's Claim, ran by Ricky Jupart, uh, home of Gordy's Home, the hit 80s television show. What better way to spend your summer than with your family out on the western frontier and leave this park truly changed. Hello, hello, welcome to the Spectre Cinema Club, a podcast obsessed with horror films and subgenres. I am one of your hosts, Devon Taylor. Sitting with me as always, I got Garrett McDowell. Hello, hello, the other host of this show. I'm excited to be here. Yes, yes, yes. And um, we are um, continuing on our 2022 Reflection Month as we uh, go through some of our favorites from this past year. I'm excited to get into a, another banger, of course. We're talking Jordan Peele's Nope. And um, we do have a guest joining us back for this one. Um, it, she is a film critic for the Austin Chronicle and one of the promoters for the Alamo Draft House down in Austin. Welcome to the show, Jenny Nolf. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Happy to have you here. Happy to have a Texan here on this very Western podcast, this very <laughs> Western episode, a little how do you do? <laughs> uh, I mean, I didn't actually think about that, but it makes... Uh, maybe it is kismet. <laughs> this is the most yeehaw horror movie of the year, without a doubt, you know? <laughs> Either I was like, oh, snap, we do have the Texan talking to Western today. Uh, yeah, very excited. Uh, uh, enjoyed um, chatting with you, Jenny, on uh, the, the Horror Queers live stream over the summer. That was super fun. And your episode on uh, Perfect Blue recently on Horror Queers was fantastic. So. Very excited to have you here to chat. Nope. And uh, before we get into the movie, though, um, how was uh, 2022 for you as a year in horror? Uh, actually, I thought it was one of the better ones in a really long time. I feel like I tend to be really picky when it comes to horror movies, and I hate everything that everyone loves. Uh, but this year, like three or four horror movies made it in my top 10, which is extremely rare nope being one of them um bones and all and pearl and barbarian being the other three with crimes of the future pretty close so i was extremely you know it's a really good year <laughs> i couldn't complain it was a good year and like yeah I, i'd say i guess i because i pretty much skew towards all horror for my new releases so i'd say out of my top 10 i think like seven or eight of them are are genre films so they they lean a little bit slightly for me um, do you, do you do a pretty even amount of a uh, horror versus uh, non horror films throughout the year? I I do because I do love a a really good drama. Um, but I tend to try to keep up with all the horror movies of the year. I can't. I'm never as good as like all the horror specific critics. I think I watched like 35 last year of the new releases, and I always watch horror movies in my free time. So. Uh, cause I feel like that's the easiest thing to watch when you want to just like wind down. <laughs> that's a funny thing. Knowing lots of people in my life who are like not genre fans describing, you know, them as like, yeah, you know, movies just to chill and relax to and not be stressed out at all where other people are like, what? <laughs> uh, that's something uh, I love about genre fans. We're all such weirdos, you know? Oh yeah. It's my favorite. Uh, if you guys, um, uh, take a listen to psychoanalysis, uh, they do episodes called comfort horror episodes and, 
um it, that's where you know they describe like how a horror film can be like you know comforting to you um i went on there and did blade but like uh but that was because my primary comfort film was taken which is uh, oddly 2013 evil dead that is a comfort film for me <laughs> Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that would be a, almost a. We could do a, a couple months on that one, to be honest. Of you know what, even I, even subgenres. I think there are sub sub uh, some subgenres. Say that three times fast. That are a little bit more. I I guess like condone. You know, are, are a little bit more just inherently. I suppose comforting. I don't know. Like because I find just slasher movies in general super comforting and like very easy to watch. So I don't know. What well, I, I I guess we could yeah do an entire like what is your warm blanket horror movie? You know. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely have to do a uh, special episode on that at some point. And uh, before we get into Nope as a uh, little primer, because uh, we did cover us here on the podcast uh, very early on, um, and that was when we were doing double features, so we might you know, bring us back up again at some point. Have not talked Get Out, but um, Jenny, um, how do you feel on uh, Jordan Peele's uh, previous efforts and uh, this one into it to kind of lead us in? Honestly, I don't feel like it's a hot take to say Jordan Peele, great director. Uh, but I do think it sometimes is a hot take that I think he keeps getting better and better with every film. Because I know a lot of people don't like Us more than Get Out. But I, I kind of did. I thought it was so bombastic and interesting. And it's like, I just love when they keep giving him more money. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> please give him more bigger budgets. And uh, what, what about you, Garrett? Um, which which uh, order... Uh, do you kind of have them sitting in uh get out is like king of the hill and i think it's going to be very difficult uh i think jordan peele has quite uh uh quite the task ahead of him if he's going to try to up that i don't think that he necessarily is i even think that this movie that we're talking about today sort of a commentary on that Mm -hmm. but you know followed by then nope for myself uh, and then Us, a movie I didn't love, uh, but Get Out and Nope, which we're going to be um, obviously discussing today, are like such, you know, wins for me. So I'm very excited to be discussing uh, this film, which I just, you know, watching it again today, I was just like, oh, yeah, this movie's fucking awesome, you know. Yeah, I, I don't think it's uh, a spicy take to say, you know, that he's three for three, um, you know, as mm-hmm. far as just like, you know, making making good films but then um it, yeah uh, for me it's a it's a interesting spread uh get out i think is the tightest and um most successful on that angle um us i think is a more fun horror film and leans more into the horror a little bit more than get out does and then uh this one um i'll say this rewatch definitely um bumped it up for me a little bit but i think it might still be under at the bottom of the three for me which isn't saying anything because i mean his worst is still gonna be better than most people's best so so uh we got we got a nice little spread going here so let's go ahead and hop into the main movie for today's episode nope released july 22nd 2022 written and directed by jordan peele uh, cinematography done by uh, Hoyt Von Hoytama, who um, is known for Let the Right One In, which we covered here on the podcast, and also did a handful of uh, Christopher Nolan's films as well. Uh, score done once again by Michael Abels, frequent collaborator with Peel, uh, edited by Nicholas Mansour. 
And as far as the box office goes, this did pretty well. Uh, made $171.4 million on a $68 million budget, which, as uh, Jenny pointed out, is his highest budget that he's gotten for any of his films. Um, and um, I did not uh, get the Rotten Tomatoes pulled up, but the voice of the people have this at a 3.9 out of 5. So, Jenny, what made you want to talk about Nope today? Uh... Honestly, it's one of those movies that has just stuck with me and I love to think about it, love to talk about throughout the year. Um, I tend to weigh those a little bit more than the movies that I find just fun and enjoyable. Because, um, I mean, and not saying that Nope isn't fun and enjoyable. I think it's incredibly fun and enjoyable, but it also has a lot of heart in it. It made me cry. It, I, I think it's really um, groundbreaking in technology with... Uh, Hoyt Van Hotema's uh, cinematography for the day for night digitally. Um, I, I like. There's just so much to think about, and I, I don't know. I just think it's like a really, really good movie, and I think it's it's his Spielberg like blockbuster kind of movie. Oh, one hundred percent. Um, as as uh, I've mentioned on the podcast, and Harry Styles, we call it. This is a movie movie, um, if you will. Um, you know, this is definitely his, um, I, I do, we're going to have many Spielberg comparisons throughout. Um, but Garrett, uh, how did you feel on uh, this rewatch of Nope? Uh, it was one that I was excited, uh, going into it because I really did enjoy it the first go around, but you know, like lots of Jordan Peele's movie, it's almost like you get off a roller coaster and you're like, let's go again, you know, cause it, it is such a different experience watching it the second time. I feel like you're able to pick up on so many details and not just like fun kitschy kind of you know cheekiness kind of referring to what happens at the end of the movie but things that actually enhance your experience watching it things that actually enhance your understanding of these characters and what they're going through and also what Jordan Peele is trying to say about himself and the film industry and society's view of entertainment and so much more I think that this film is one that just kind of begs to be rewatch not in a way of like i don't understand what's happening here i think i need to watch it more with like a thinking cap on some like some lynch movies come to mind as being experiences like that where the first one you're just like trying to you know trying to hang on and survive this really is kind of the best of both worlds you're able to watch it and just have that fun sort of pop, you know shove popcorn in your mouth kind of feel watching this movie but then also there's plenty on the table in regards to substance and potential for conversations to be had which i think that you know now that this is his third his third go around i think jordan peele has really proven himself to be like the master of that he has proven time and time again that he is a filmmaker that is able to deliver those blockbuster you know go see it in the theater with a packed crowd kind of movies but also ones with great insight and more of that kind of you know, what most people would call like art house horror or elevated horror or whatever. I think that he's done such a great job of dismissing that kind of distinction and saying, no, you can have blockbusters that are thoughtful, that have something to say. And I think the second go around uh, proved to be, you know, even more enjoyable. My my rating actually went up on this one. I had a lot of fun watching this, even though just on my TV, didn't get to see it in IMAX again, but still totally worked for me at home and then some. Yeah, and and we had kind of I had talked with both of you guys a little bit both off uh, mic 
that like this was the one that um going in the i think i let the hype and expectations affect my viewing the first time around and i you know try very hard for that not to happen i don't you know avoid reviews and trailers as much as i can but of course can't avoid twitter forever because on there every day and uh so it was one of the ones that definitely the expectations were so high and then i remember coming out of it going oh yeah you know it was good it was solid but like wasn't in love with it the way that other people were and uh so getting to rewatch it with a you know with a clean slate knowing what i'm getting myself into um it definitely improved my rating i appreciated it uh more on its own merits especially in the way that um you were kind of talking about garrett that um I, I remember coming out of it going okay like i see what he's saying but i wanted a little bit more out of it and then once i realized other people were kind of having that too and then you know reading into moon be like oh yeah like we are kind of doing that thing where we're expecting now for him to come out with the next big thing it's gonna be deep mm -hmm. what's the social message here not to say that it isn't here but it's definitely not the forefront and this is kind of um that that median of getting to have that fun experience um there is stuff to look into and it's like he's kind of he's kind of taken what james wan did i would say like you know about 10 years ago when the first conjuring came out and kind of bridging that that indie feel with a big blockbuster experience of a movie but then jordan peele kind of adds on that extra layer with even more you know text onto it that you can look into but you don't have to but mm -hmm. it is there so um uh, before we get into um some of the subgenres and get a little bit deeper uh jenny would you like to uh are you ready for the 60 second synopsis to uh, catch people up if they haven't gotten to rewatch it here in a minute. Whew, I will try. <laughs> Alrighty, I got a timer going for you. 60 seconds on the clock in three, two, one, go. All right, so Nope follows brother and sister, OJ and Emerald, um, and it's a little bit after their father's passing. That was a freak accident where... Uh, a bunch of debris fell from the sky and suddenly killed him. Uh, and it's you, the movie. Wow. <laughs> 60 seconds is hard because my brain freezes. Uh, uh, and then it kind of gets into what is going on with this ranch and why all these weird things are happening uh, to this family in particular. And, it gets a really bit sci-fi, it gets a little bit horror, it gets a little bit Western, it gets a little bit movie buff history, um, and it's a pretty wild ride. Hey, look at that. We had a we had a stall in there and you still finished with seven seconds to spare. <laughs> okay. And I'll say this is probably one of the harder ones to try to do a 60 second synopsis with, because uh, typically it's the opposite way. It's like, I think we look too much into synopsis and then end up being like, oh, yeah, it was pretty straightforward. It's like, no, there's a there's a lot going on here as far as uh, the different storylines and um, uh, the different subgenres, of course, which we will get into. So um, some of the subgenres, obviously, we kind of have this big giant alien monster. We have some adventure thriller uh, elements here and there. We got the Western that we pointed out. Um, so I'll start with you, Garrett. Uh, what are some of the subgenre elements that were strongest for you? Uh, definitely the adventure thriller, for sure. Um, I think going out of this, I was really 
like struck at this you had already kind of uh, mentioned it jenny that this is jordan peele's kind of approach at making a spielberg-esque sort of movie he's been very open about the influences that Close Encounters of the Third Kind had on this film, but I think Jaws is more apparent. Jaws and this film, I think, share so much in common, and I think that also wouldn't be news to Jordan Peele. So I think that Jaws, yes, is this, you know, terrifying, you know, uh, kept people out of the water for decades kind of movie, but it's also an adventure film at its heart. You have people setting to sea, trying to kill this beast, and I, I think that this movie in, you know, as you had already mentioned, Yvonne, lots of things going on in this. I think one of kind of the, the things that it's juggling is this very adventurous um, tone throughout it. I think the score is also like a pretty big indicator of that as well. Yes, it's got this big Western feel to it, but it's not what you would expect from a horror movie score. It's not this like quiet sort of pensive, you know, violin kind of things that we hear from like a lot of James Wan movies. This is like this rousing French horns and brass, you know, just like really kind of get your uh, your uh, blood pumping sort of uh, music here. And I think that, yeah, with what's going on with these characters, this real sort of objective that they have, I think the adventure thriller angle is, is probably the most uh, prominent thing, even beyond being a science fiction movie, which I think would surprise some people. Yeah, no, I, I, I would uh, I would agree there because even though this is dealing with an alien, it's not as sci-fi as, um, as a typical alien movie, but I'll save that point for a second. Jenny, what about uh, some of the subgenre elements that were strongest for you? I mean, I actually find the sci-fi element to be really relevant to my tastes, at least, because, uh, I mean, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but we haven't mentioned, like, M. Night Shyamalan's, like, signs that kind of came to mind immediately when watching this film, which is also you know, very inspired by, we've mentioned Jaws, we mentioned Close Encounters, which fun fact, I saw Jaws after this movie for the first time. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, Uh, so I really didn't have that to compare it to, but I I understand the reference then and I definitely do now. Let Um, me ask, was it when it released in theaters? Did you actually get to see it in theaters? I saw an IMAX. <laughs> nice, me too. Yeah, uh, not to not to interrupt, but seeing that with like a group of people, it was fun to see like who has and who has not seen mm-hmm. the movie because there's like that that jump scare and like three fourths of the crowd was like, oh shit. <laughs> so I, I maybe you were uh, in the crowd as someone who got to experience that for the first time. That's really exciting. Oh yeah, no, I was like, oh yeah, nope, I see it now. <laughs> uh- <laughs> Um, so the sci-fi elements really jump out to me personally because that's the kind of movies I tend to gravitate towards and just really love. But also what I really admire about a lot of Jordan Peele's films is that he has a lot of comedy elements uh, interwoven throughout. And I do think there's some genuinely funny and good moments, even though that's not like maybe the most uh, forward of the genres. Um, in addition, uh, I do think that the Western part is really like the black western in particular is very influential into this film and i think it's like interesting how he weaves that in both in the foreground and the background mm-hmm. yeah the 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 western elements were what i was kind of trying to keep an eye out for a little bit more on this uh rewatch because like one of the um uh top descriptors when you like look it up online is neo-western and and it does have that like uh the a very like because when I think neo-Western, I think of like, you know, taking the Western tropes, but obviously modernizing it. And 
Uh, they do it in, you know, some very interesting ways and, you know, in very literal ways where it's like we still have characters dealing with horses, but then, you know, the, uh, you know, heroic moment we get at the end is on a motorcycle instead, you know. So it's like even just like little simple switches like that and um, uh, work really well. And as far as like, uh, because and what I was saying about um, it being sci-fi, but not, I guess, in the sci-fi that you think it has is um, because even though this is like, you know, an alien creature um, this isn't an alien invasion movie because we only get the one and it's not like on a larger scale. So it's not an alien invasion. Um, and, it, you know, and they talk about uh, Jean Jacket throughout as, you know, more like an animal. So I, you know, I have this, you know, obviously in the animals attack uh, sector of subgenres, like uh, kind of in there with, you know, other shark movies up there with uh, uh, this movie kind of has some anaconda energy in there a little bit. Um, you know, so, uh, the animal attack movies, which I mean, you know, biology is still science animals, uh, deal with that. So, but I guess in, uh, when we typically think of sci-fi, we're kind of thinking more of like the gross anatomy and like chemistry angle to it. But I like the, the biological angle of it, of, you know, like treating Jean Jacket as an animal to learn its tendencies and how to deal with it. So, um, that, and that was the angle that kind of stood out to me the first time around as well. Um, yeah. and yeah, so, and, and like you said, the, the, the adventure thriller angle is, is, uh, is the big, big one for me. I mean, like I knew that the, the Jaws, you know, parallels were there, but then on this rewatch, I was like, oh, like it is so here I can even, uh, put which character is who, you know, mm -hmm. uh, within the roles of it, you know, like it's, it's really there. And, uh, and I was also a late bloomer to Jaws. I didn't see Jaws until like two or three years ago. I believe. Wild, wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jaws, that's it weird. In. Jaws is like one of those movies that is like in my top five. Not like not just like favorites, but like movies that I've seen the most. So uh, it's interesting hearing your guys' perspective <laughs> is like watching it the second time. Like, oh, okay, I see it. And then obviously, you, Jenny, hadn't seen it at all. Or myself, like being watching it and being like kind of that realization of like, oh shit, Jordan Peele is like making a Jaws movie. Like that's fucking cool. But with this weird kind of butterfly fucking vaginal alien <laughs> not a shark jean jacket yeah <laughs> i love that I, I love giving one i love giving monsters like non-conspicuous names that is uh something that just always makes me happy so the fact that this giant creature is just no oh, it's just jean jacket you know oh how cute look at jean jacket spread its spread its curtains at us how cute yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And, and even the parallels too go into like kind of the structure of the movie as well. Cause I've always like said, you know, Jaws is like two movies in one, um, mm -hmm. you know, and then the way that they kind of bridge them together and this movie does it as well. And I will actually say that's kind of maybe one of my negatives for this is that it doesn't work as well. Like I wish the adventure part towards the, the third act was longer. I wish we got a little bit more of that. If, if I was, if I'm being honest. Mm hmm. Wow, a rare complaint where you're like, I wish there was like 15 more minutes <laughs> Yeah, in a two-hour movie. <laughs> you know, because I was thinking, cause I was like, the first half is a little slow for me, but at the same time, there's nothing I could think of that I would cut out because it is all necessary. And I mm -hmm. guess that slow start, you know, does aid in that third act. Like once it does kick into adventure mode, it like really like gets going. And like like you said, like even the score changes. You know, Michael Abels does two different scores in this movie. You know, he's got the Western stuff in the back end. But um, but yeah, so like I don't know. I think I would have taken 
uh, an extra an extra ten minutes of uh when we really got the team assembled and they're all you know trying to figure out what you know the the best ways to do it and they're coming up with all these different plans like that that is kind of some of the stuff I would have uh, taken a little bit more of as far as uh, the structure goes. Do you like the zany planning a lot? Mm. We, we we love a good planning montage and I, yeah the team in this one is like full of such different personalities eclectic characters like you had already talked about some of these characters are archetypal in a sense that there is definitely like a quint sort of character the the grizzled veteran who's willing to do anything in order to you know achieve this sort of goal uh some of the uh, performances of which are you know just instantly memorable instantly iconic and uh yeah the michael wincott who plays uh, antlers uh, hoist in this who's so like good. kind of the crazed cinematographer sounds like he just like gargled an ashtray before the take started <laughs> is like fucking so good like he's so excellent <laughs> i love me uh i love me a good old gravel voice i mean like when he's uh doing his rendition of purple people eaters is just it's so good because it's like he's not even singing but by the way that his just voice naturally is it still sounds like it uh he he's really great and um yeah the and he's yeah he's kind of our quint here and then um of course and then so you have uh m and oj our uh brother and sister duo which again great year for brother and sister uh uh sibling dynamics this year Mm -hmm. uh throughout horror we got a lot of them um and they are kind of our um they are our I think the two of them together are Brody, and then I think Angel is Hooper himself. That's the way I had them in the mm. note to Jaws comparisons. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I find this all fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that the film is also you, you know, Jaws is going to come up a lot in this conversation, but not to like undercut this film. I think that Peel takes a lot of you know archetypal elements from that film and really does put his own spin on it in a way, and in a way that he is still able to make such a statement. Uh, and I think that what Peel has to say, it's like I find it so impressive because he's this is like a real. You know, watching something like Get Out is is impressive impressive in its you know in in its own way. But I think that Peel is like juggling more plates in this, and that like the wire kind of act that he's playing is almost. I like Get Out more, but I'm more impressed by this movie that he's able to do so many different things with this. Such a such a versatile film that mm-hmm. he's able to have this like semi-autobiographical sort of self-reflective piece but also this big adventure blockbuster but also like kind of a condemnation of society and how we view entertainment and the film industry in particular and also like the idea of like you know the black western and so many other things going on here that i'm just like was just really in awe watching this a second time and being able to kind of really nail down some of the you know, what I believe, you know, Peel to be saying in this. And I even still think that I could watch it a third and a fourth time, and I'm still going to be picking up details and still going to have new revelations about these characters. Yeah, and and so so I, I pose a question for both of you, because I guess I can't say this is a complaint, because it's not the film's fault, because it's what Peel wanted to do. But I guess um, from I've seen other people mention it, too. Um, cause you, like you said, you kind of have, uh, him taking these archetypes and present them in a certain way. And mm-hmm. I think like in a, 
in a typical other story or other movie, um, or Jupe's character might be the protagonist because he kind of is a little bit more representative of the themes that he's going for. However, I think him taking, uh, putting Emerald and OJ in the in the lead positions is kind of being like, well, no, here, what if we had the movie that it's like, okay, or the story, it's not told through the the main person. It's like, these are the people told from the sidelines. These are the people that, you know, work behind the scenes and that are part of it. And, and so it's kind of telling the story through their eyes because, like, there's a, there's a whole other movie of, you know, Jupe and his, you know, thinking he's chosen and, you know, uh, running away from his trauma and like he's been you know feeding it horses for six months like that's a whole movie itself like this whole thing he's been doing so um yeah. i so i i find his character so compelling but then um watching the second time around i was just very endeared to emerald and oj as just their characters the way that they work together so then i was like you know what like it does make sense for them to still be the leads of this but what would you guys think if Jupe was more the focus of this versus OJ and Emerald. How would the film kind of play out? Oh, it's like a totally different movie, though, because what I actually like about Nope is it kind of inverses what you expect from a sci-fi film where the threat is in the skies, because instead of looking to the skies, which like everyone does, even in a Spielberg movie, that's like the whole thing is like his like little uh, like looking up to like Mm -hmm the heavens and like seeing like et or close encounters like some aliens or something like that and it's like the spielberg look but it's like the inverse of that so jupe has the spielberg look because he's always looking to the skies he's looking to something like greater and grander but oj and emerald don't they look down and they're i just love that inverse of that Mm, and i think that it's it's just a totally different movie i feel like if jupe is the lead character it is extremely more spielberg um yeah or even like yeah m night Shyamalan, um who is also yeah, yeah we've met, i've met said kind of similar vibe as well sure yeah i think it's a real testament if anything to how compelling even like the supporting characters are in this film that you're like shit yeah. they they really do have this sort of like tip of the iceberg thing going to where it's like we only see like a little sliver of this but you're right like there's this whole other story uh, under the surface and the horror and all of that. And, you know, the fact that he's like getting his kids and his wife and all of these people involved and they're somehow like pretty into it, you know, and you've also got uh, the, the whole Gordy backstory and everything, which I will definitely be getting to a lot of those flashbacks and the importance of those to Ricky's character. But I really do like that. It is this kind of, zig when you expect it to zag and that maybe in another film you know jupe would be the protagonist but i think their their journey in order to like preserve their father's uh company that they worked so hard for and kind of the inherited weight and the pressure of that i find to be a more compelling you know reason to keep them going rather than jupes which seems to be more selfish more monetary a little bit more self-aggrandizing uh you know of like look at this amazing spectacle almost kind of like viewing it as like this sort of messiah i think it is really interesting to have oj and emerald you know in like looking like in, in an attempt to capture this thing or actively like averting their tension away from it looking down as you had already talked about jenny i think that the, yeah they are this interesting sort of contrast uh, and I, 
you know, not for nothing. I think watching Ricky feed the, or uh, watching Jupe feed six horses, you know, <laughs> or however many horses he's mm. feeding to this thing, wouldn't he wouldn't be the most likable person in the world. So I, I would think that there would be this like cautionary tale sort of thing. But I think that with OJ and Emerald, you're also really able to tell this entire new layer to this film mm-hmm. in being like the Hollywood angle. I don't think that those themes maybe would be as present. So, yeah, I mean, I think that Peel could. I, I totally think that he's capable of making that a compelling story. But I think that this idea of legacy and trying to uphold kind of what's expected to you, I think, is not only like a personal story for him. But also having black protagonists at the forefront is obviously going to be very important to to Peel. So, yeah, I think that he could do it. You know, I believe in Jordan Peel, but I, I respect his choice to keep it between OJ and, uh, and Emerald. No, and 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 it's like I, it's like it's funny because I like talked myself into it. Like I literally had this whole section. Where I was like, oh my god, like this is what the whole Jupe movie would look like. But then that there it is. It's like, well, if I already know what it would look like, that's Jordan Peele saying, okay, we don't need to tell that story because you kind of yeah. see where it would go. Like you know, he would learn something about you know the you know facing his trauma and you know the way that he's using stuff and the morality of it all. And like, yeah, yeah. so it's like you kind of would have that. And then I like that we kind of do get to I like the um, the unwinding of the morals for M and OJ, because as you know, at first it's like obviously they're very hurt by what has happened to them and they're trying to preserve their legacy. But then they get to a point to where they're like kind of calling themselves out of being like, okay, like, hey, are we doing this for the right reasons? Um, Are we, you know, like but then them kind of saying like, hey, like, you know, we've lived our entire life trying to play by the books and, you know, get our jobs that way and make our living. And, uh, like, sometimes you do got to, you know, go to the other side and do what you wouldn't think you're doing. So it's like they get mm-hmm. to a point to where they even know that they what they're trying to do is is exploitive, but they know that it's what they need to do to survive, though, also. You know, yeah. and so it's like and, and makes a nice parallel with Jean Jacket because, like, they are people that are empathetic to animals and they understand that Jean Jacket's also just trying to survive. So it's like it, it does make a very nice dichotomy that I didn't appreciate the first time around. Yeah. And I think the very name of Jean Jacket is like a pretty interesting choice, like a creative choice for Jordan Peele, because like having seen this film, I was kind of, you know, the months following this, I was like, why again was the creature called Jean Jacket? And then watching this again and realizing um, that that was the name of the horse uh, that, you know, Emerald was supposed to be hers and it was kind of taken away from her. So you not only have this sense of like trying to rekindle this relationship between OJ and Emerald. And now this is something that they can do together, but also this sense of like training or sort of taming this creature um, and using that as a way to, you know, obviously keep this like family business going, but using it as a way to like rekindle their own relationship. But when you look at Jupe's character, like the way that he's viewed horses and used horses is primarily for show, not that the sacrifice aside, but it's mostly just for entertainment. And that's kind of how he's using that is he's using this sensationalism as entertainment and it doesn't really seem to like respect the thing that he's you know sort of trying to 
t- like wrangle in a way. Like you look at the beginning of the movie when they're on that Hollywood set and none of the other people are listening to OJ about this horse and somebody could have really gotten hurt. So I think that OJ and Emerald are able to approach this situation with that same sort of respect that they would have for a wild anim- animal, which Jupe clearly doesn't. That's why he gets a stadium full of people killed. What do you think the movie is trying to say about legacy because i mean you have these two characters who allegedly they're like great 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 grandfather can't remember how many greats there are uh, like, the great grandfather <laughs> <laughs> was uh like one of the key components of the beginning of the film industry you have jupe's uh legacy and like what that meant um and him like banking off of his legacy to like create mm-hmm. profit and his own trauma um do you and you guys mentioned like it's about the siblings coming together and finding their own path. Do you think that like Peel is trying to say that legacy shouldn't be defined by what other people think like it should be? I mean, it's a it's a it's like a each character like kind of goes on a different part of the spectrum. Like I love that that is another reason that like how all these supporting characters work out so well because they kind of each represent like their own little spot because like OJ is the purist like he's most like his dad and he wants to keep it going for you know that that pride and that legacy part versus you have M who you know she even says at the beginning that like the horse stuff is her side stuff she's trying to do her own thing um you know be a director be a writer um which I do love that almost every skill that she mentioned in that opening meeting gets used somewhere in the film. She gets to be oh, a seamstress. She, she gets yeah. to do her motorcycle. So I do love that. But, um, yeah, so it's like, she's, she's on that angle. And then, um, you know, and then even angel and antlers, like they even, uh, kind of fall on different sides of it as well. Like antler has the philosophical kind of grandiose, the, the dream of it all, uh, you know idea of legacy like well legacy is not worth anything if you don't fucking you know nut up or shut up and he and he does all right you know he, he gives himself to it and and angel kind of falls in his own part where he's like kind of questioning like yeah like you know i want to do this for like the fame and fortune but like we're also like helping right like like so e- each character kind of falls on the spectrum in a different angle which i love yeah and i do think that echoing what you had said Devon I and I've kind of tiptoed around it this autobiographical sort of story that Peel mm-hmm. is telling here in that he has like OJ has kind of inherited this responsibility of a legacy and inherited the, this responsibility of aren't you that guy from that very famous company that you know helped with these other things and was the first black you know uh, hollywood horse trainers and is descendants of this you know first movie star stuntman you know animal tamer kind of thing i think that peel is also wrestling with the same sort of weird sense of responsibility in that he did accomplish something that really set the stakes high up for him that when you come out of the gates and yes he had done work prior to this but when you come out and make a film like get out which changes you know so many things and is just such a landmark horror movie and then people look and be like cool what else you got you know i really Mm -hmm. think that it is this kind of weird game that he's sort of having to play with himself and uh you know uh I could have phrased that a little better, but <laughs> this re- weird kind of, you know, he, he's his own worst enemy in a weird way that he's trying to 
continue to tell a story and tell stories that are personal to him and that he hopes that people engage with. But I think that audiences really do have this sense of like, yeah, but more of that stuff that you've already done, you know, I mean, do that or do it better. He got he got called Spielberg even before he did this movie. Like, yeah, between like, yes, with the impact level, I yeah. totally get the comparison, but it's like. Get Out or Us, neither one of them feel very Spielbergian, but yet everybody, that was the comparison he was getting. So yeah, I love that he goes, fine. Am I, I'm Spielberg? Fine. I'll make a Spielberg movie for you. Here you go. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I think that uh, we've uh, also mentioned M. Night a few times in this too. Another mm -hmm. person who definitely uh, got that as well. So yeah, I do think that there is this kind of like inherited responsibility that uh, O.J. is dealing a lot with in this film, and you're right, all of the other characters are also having a similar sort of um, like circling the same sort of theme as well as other themes of the spectacle and, you know, making these horrifying, terrible tragedies into this thing to be gawked at, you know, which we'll, we'll definitely be getting into. But you're right, like Angel, there's a scene where he's uh, talking to Emerald and he's like, we're going to help people, right? Like we're doing the right thing. It's not all about just getting that Oprah shot and now he's famous and you know there really does seem to be a responsibility for him to like if I'm going to sacrifice myself and you know put myself on the line for this I want to be able to ensure that this is going to help people uh, and for OJ it's like continuing his family business and I think that Emerald it is this kind of closing of that chapter having the freedom to go forward and to mm -hmm. do those things that she wants to pursue so I think that yeah you're right Devon that there's so many different ways that this theme kind of impacts different characters that sort of like you know splinters out in an interesting way yeah I'll, well oh go ahead jenny i actually i had this thought when we re-brought up m night Shyamalan and we're, all, we're having this legacy conversation it's really interesting um because that's a filmmaker who didn't live up to the legacy of you know spielberg's name being kind of like thrust upon him uh -huh. and i i think it's really interesting that Peel is you making a Spielberg movie after people, you know, were convinced he is a Spielberg director, even though Get Out, you're right. It doesn't really have anything in common with Spielberg movies. Yeah. Um, but I think that's interesting when you think about, like, you know, the influence of the Black Western on Nope, because Black Western is all about people of color in America kind of paving their own way and not having a white person define what they are and what their legacy will be. And so I find it, you know, yeah. kind of interesting then that you meant we bring brought up M. Night a few times because why would Peel's legacy have to rely on a white man who has already paved his way and done something sure. mm -hmm. for himself? Like, why can't Peel have his own? Yeah. Well, and that is also like just also historically like the Western frontier was a similar kind of thing of going out West. Yes, there's obviously like people already lived there in that kind of sense too, but there really was this kind of like exploration expedition sort of idea of exploring the frontiers and all of this thing i know it's a little bit more complicated than that but i think that it's also related to the setting of the film oh yeah i mean it's i mean it, it's that because i like i like both takes on that because um i mean with m night he had the same thing too because he's also a director of color so it's like again like why did he need it and I and it's crazy because then we look at the two paths like M. Night chose not to, you know, he's like, no, I'm still not going to make a Spielberg movie. And but and he continued to go in further opposite direction. Then he got shunned for it and he got put in director jail for a few years, essentially, you know, mm -hmm. so it's it's kind of interesting 
uh, the different approaches of it versus, you know, Spielberg is, you know, quote unquote, making a Spielberg movie. But this is still so him in so many levels, though, that it yeah. is like it, it just does work on on that angle. And uh, and while we're talking about Spielberg and we've already said the word a lot, the word I, I had to mute the word when uh, it when this movie came out originally because I got tired of it. But let's talk spectacle here. Because, I mean, Steven Spielberg, king of the spectacle himself, and then um, Jordan Peele has this uh, recurring motif where he likes to uh, put kind of a, uh, a a piece of his thesis statement at the beginning of the film. And yeah. uh, this one opens up with, I will cast abominable filth at you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. And I think I love I one I I wish more directors did this like yeah like don't don't make us guess the entire movie just go ahead and put your statement out there and then we'll figure it out um so one let's do that more but two um it, I love how these statements do tie in so specifically like you know every peel decision has a, a a thing behind it you know like even so like uh kind of with with that and um and like you said people are. Uh, had that expectation of of Peel after Get Out uh, saying, what, what are you going to do next? And and you kind of get that, you know, with the themes that he's dealing with this, with the, the performative animals and uh, him making his film, like he kind of might have felt that pressure of people going, hey, dance, monkey, dance. Like, what, what are you going to do? So it's like, I feel like it's even intentional that Gordy is a chimp in this movie, you mm -hmm. know, that, you know, like, oh, you wanted the chimp to dance? Well, now he just murdered the entire set, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I like that it's like, okay, like, and, and that's the whole thing with this movie too, is like, you know, they are doing something that's dangerous. That is, you know, they don't feel right about, you know, exploiting this animal, you know, because they are animal people themselves. But, you know, as the statement kind of makes it, it's like, okay, well, if you want this spectacle, spectacle, it's not going to be clean and easy. It's going to be dirty. And like, if you, you want, you want to be a spectacle, I'll make it you one, but like, you're going to have to earn it, you know? So it's kind of, uh, interesting in that angle. So, uh, Jenny, what do you feel about, uh, th this little opening statement? I mean, I think you kind of nailed it. Uh, I, and it's fu it's funny to me because I think that this movie, especially when it comes to spectacle, like pushes the boundaries so greatly. Like, I mean, I've mentioned it at the top, like the fact that he literally created a new camera technique so the film could like look really beautiful uh, and look like it was filmed at night in certain scenes when it's actually filmed in the daylight. I, I'm brilliant, honestly, that this man like was like, no, you know what? I'm going to create something. It's very James Cameron, actually, who is the king of spectacle. Um, which it just ties into the whole movie of like, and then, oh, I mean, bringing him back to like the fact that like the whole idea is for everyone to look down when you like so desperately want to look at the big picture and up to the skies and like look at the grandeur of everything. Like sometimes you shouldn't look at that and you should look away. I It's really interesting, fascinating, uh way to think about it all it's like when it's like when people describe something as a car crash they can't look away from you know yeah. it's like you, you shouldn't be even though it's like oh you're watching something that's very dangerous probably hurting somebody but like oh i still gotta look at it you know yeah i think yeah. it's 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 a little too pronged here i think that there's like a real world application to it and then like a just 
audience sensibilities and our taste in movies kind of mm-hmm. application towards mm-hmm. it because i think that we'll start off with that i think generally with movies nowadays especially with like the price of tickets and how many options are available to people for entertainment streaming and otherwise, you know, I think that people generally nowadays, when they go to the movie theater, it is to see a spectacle. Like most people, I would say, especially family members and things like that, if, or if uh, families and, uh, and things like that, I think that people are probably going to avoid seeing those like smaller indie dramas in the movie theater. And they're like, I'll catch it when it's on TV, if I even see it at all. However, with the superhero movies, comic book movies, Star Wars, other Avatar films, or, you know, big Pixar films, or whatever it is, I think that going to the theater is now more of an event, and the event thing is kind of more of the key word, rather than going to appreciate whatever the the, the art is, you know. I think there's that side of things, and I think that Peel is capitalizing on that, and that people seem to be drawn towards a sense of spectacle, drawn towards this awe-inspiring you know sort of feeling and that's the only feeling that you know people seem to want out of theaters nowadays or to out of movies is to inspire awe and then nothing else you know i think that there's kind of that perspective here but then also i don't know how intentional this is but i feel like especially like in a in a pandemic world seeing the nation just i don't know about you guys just kind of like be glued to your phone for like an entire year not only because you're just at home all the time but you're also just seeing like compounding tragedies on one another whether it's like shootings or these terrible things happening at like protests where people breathing tear gassed and like beaten you know half to death or hit by cars and then you've got all the you know the pandemic stuff and like so many things and just horror just compounded on one another and we have the unfortunate, you know, kind of context now of we're seeing it all at once, you know, where prior generations, my parents' generation didn't necessarily have that. They had evening news and that was about it. So whereas us, it's like you can see any horrible thing happening in the world at any given time, you know. So I think that there is this kind of nationwide even worldwide sort of movement of looking towards the horror and the macabre and like being unable to look away from it. Um, I also look at like, you know, true crime podcasts and true crime documentaries Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff is like Mm -hmm. such a big deal right now. And so many people are so interested in that. And even we're talking about like comfort watches, people watch that shit for comfort, (laughs) which is fucking bananas to me, you know? Um, So I think about series like the Jeffrey Dahmer show and things like that. And people like thirst trapping over Dahmer and like all this weird shit that's just going on right now that I think that someone like Jordan Peele is like really apt to like kind of, you know uh analyze that kind of thing and really see what's like try to pinpoint this just like very weird time um in hollywood and you know i think that even beyond that even further there also is this kind of like you know urban legend conspiracy theory sort of angle happening here especially with like the gordy's home thing and having this like having memorabilia and people wanting to read about it and read about these different tragedies and all of these things happening. That's also like 
not just a real world thing, but like a Hollywood thing too. Mm -hmm. You look at movies like The Wizard of Oz and people have been obsessed with that of like, did that Munchkin kill himself? You know, did all the Munchkins have an orgy? Lots of them are Munchkin related, but like, you know, that guy was lit on fire. Holy shit. You know, like all of these like crazy things that people love to read about with Hollywood because it's scandalous, you know, and I think that Gordy's home is a lot of that in a stew it's this obsession with macabre mm -hmm. obsession with things that we shouldn't be looking at but now as a society are just kind of like thrown into our face uh and it's all you know in this just glorious adventure like sci-fi thriller kind of stew here it's great i mean you basically kind of like it's the danger of spectacle which is like the whole quote and the point of it but like when you get into like you know animal cruelty on set like people were really terrible to animals i mean you have like gladiator like not gladiator sorry ben-hur killed like how many horses and like sure. filming and so when you add all that but also just the way that like movie sets treated people and especially people of color throughout the years and like how dangerous they are to like stunts stunt people and mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, the danger of getting what you want. Um, and then you like even have Tom Cruise like jumping out of airplanes from insane heights that could kill him Hell for the yeah. spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it wait. Oh, I thought I had myself muted. Yeah, no, it's uh it's it, it's it's interesting because uh, especially if we take a look at that uh the the whole Gordy attack scene. Like there's there's something starkly like terrifying about like when Gordy is like on his attack and then you like see Gordy and he's covered in blood, but he's in people clothing, you know? Yeah. Not like just that, that, but like at a children's birthday party. Yeah. Extensively, you like, know? So like just even like that image of like, when you see like, Oh, like, like we shouldn't have, like we shouldn't have done that, but like, no, we were going to dress them up. We're going to have all these lights. We're going to have the popping things. And like you said, like we're going to take every risk, um, it, you know, just to see if we can get to that spectacle, you know, and then and then you see what happens. And then. Yeah. So I feel like with that, it also um, um, translates to Jean Jacket, too. You know, on Jean Jacket looks like a old style camera, you know, like the, the design yeah. of it. And so the 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 idea of like, oh, yeah, like obviously, like, you know, we want to. Uh, you know, always have the camera facing outwards, you know, like, I mean, yeah, obviously there's, you know, a lot of us in the world that like having the camera on them, but generally the, I think a lot of people would rather they have the camera facing outwards. So then when you have this giant alien monster that looks like a camera coming to attack you, it's like kind of like, you know, the, the idea of like, okay, well, what if we flip the camera on you? How would you feel? Like if we just start putting this camera in your face, you know? So it's like, kind of reflecting you know the the experience that um we have put animals through like through throughout you know uh it, you know even uh in the very first scene when oj is uh trying to do that horse gig you know and uh i will say the the safety speech not that great because there's only one safety rule on that the rest of that is just emerald talking however <laughs> however he did still say like like hey like you gotta come to me like you know like and and you see the way that they talk to him and they're like hey can you can you uh turn the horse around can you can you see if the horse is ready like can you do and like he's just like and he's trying to tell him like hey we actually need a break like the horse isn't ready for a take right now and they're just like mm -hmm. no 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 like we're, we're gonna do it and then you know we see what happens so it's like kind of like yeah the 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 uh, minimized version of like what uh what happened with the gordy scene yeah and it's also like not having this respect for things that are 
could very quickly and easily get out of your control like having this just like complete ambivalence to the power of nature and like having this monkey on set and like having a uh you know a party hat on him and balloons and everything and everything will be fine because it's a kid's show and whatever and just it just spiraling out of control i think is like you know really horrifying horrifying in and of itself and also contributes to what like jupe is doing and he's just making this a spectacle and oh it's been happening every friday for you know the week let's just invite these people here to see this thing and get their money and sell you know toys and t-shirts and all of this stuff to where it's like you are messing with powers that you are not like equipped to handle and i think that this is really playing with that idea and it makes it you know pretty fucking horrifying <laughs> Yeah, there's a the 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 scene where Jupe is where we see you know what Jupe's been doing that he's about to offer up, and um it, before he goes into a speech, he whispers to himself, "You're chosen." Yeah, and I mean if that doesn't scream main character energy, I don't know what does. <laughs> um, and you know, kind of going back to um, you know, because when Gordy attacked, like you know, Gordy you know didn't attack him and like you know reached out for the fist bump thing, so he kind of. Um, equates it to like that that similar experience but then like you said they they've gotten to it's like well it's been coming every friday around the same time so i guess that's we're okay we'll keep working with that and then yeah whenever jean jacket shows up early because they're they have it so planned out that they're like okay we're gonna do this whole other show and then in an hour you'll see what's gonna happen the uh, kids then, come out in a dance, which is fucking yeah. hilarious. <laughs> the kids are going to come out and do a little dance for us. <laughs> and Jean Jacket shows up early, and Jupe's wife has the line. She goes, bear with us. Trained animals can be unpredictable. Yeah. So just even in the fact that just from what they've been doing over these past six months, they think that they have it trained. They think that they are the ones in power. Yeah. Which is is shot is just so wild and baffling that you don't even know what it is or understand it, but yet you are so confident that you already have this power of it. Like that is just the ignorance of humans and the way that they think about animals. And uh, so that line just like killed me because it's just like the whole irony of it. Yeah. Give me a real show. I think she says, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna give us a real show here, and uh, and yeah, and and again, like that 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 scene though is is really great in the way that like I'm so good sets everything up, and then and and then that leads into I mean easily I would say probably the most horrifying uh, scene of the entire movie um, when we actually see you know well notice we don't ever actually get to see people get sucked up, but we know it's happening. But yeah. then we kind of do. But then but we no. see the inside. See them in their guts. Uh. Yeah. Fun fact: the um when he when uh, Jupe says like in an hour from now you'll leave completely transformed. It's exactly like one hour, you know, before the credits, which is like pretty cool. I I wonder what was that? That was like in the edit. It's like I don't care what we got to do, but the rest of the movie has to be an hour, or else that line is not gonna be as cool. So respect. It's a really cool, completely pointless detail. <laughs> That's why they couldn't add those 15 minutes for you. <laughs> oh, there you go, Devon. Yep. They're like, nope, we, we have this line. It's got to pay off later. There's a few different uh, things with time because um, with Jupe, he referenced that the Gordy incident was six minutes and 13 seconds. Which is the scripture passage, yeah. The scripture passage and also yeah. is apparently the time that Jean Jacket comes. He said at 6, th or he goes at 6.13 yeah. p.m. was the first time that they were visited. So right. uh, the, the all the times and numbers are, are again, very intentional details but 
but man, that that just the the image of of Jean Jacket just vomiting rain blood onto the house, which oh my god, so good, petty as hell. Jean Jacket is so petty. He goes, <laughs> "You fed me a fake horse. Okay, I'm gonna eat all these people, and then like, because Jean Jacket knows he has to purge all the the non." organic items it goes no i'm gonna come to your house and do it on <laughs> you like that is one of the pettiest things ever i love it i love it <laughs> now that scene is extremely evil dead ish too almost mm-hmm. like your favorite evil dead 2013 like i was thinking when the raining blood scene like it reminded me so much of that yeah i love myself a blood rain too <laughs> very animeville horror kind of s mm-hmm. i don't know like I'm surprised the Conjuring doesn't have a like a scene where there's raining blood on the house in any of the series. <laughs> yeah, if it was a Blade movie, it'd be a rave, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it would be a rave. And uh, and and just uh, yeah, the 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 visual of it is so is so good, and especially uh, some of the 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 sequences afterwards where it's like um when they're like trying to get into the van afterwards, and you just see like the aftermath of it, and like the dirt slightly red. And yeah. like the the fog of it, the house looks so good in these uh in these shots. But then we also gotta uh, point out the sound design in this mm. in this movie. Um, you know, so you have when when Jean Jacket is near, you can hear the screams of people getting yeah. digested, and you're hearing <laughs> it throughout the movie. And they make it to where it sounds like like roller coaster, like screams on a roller coaster, like because obviously Jupe has Jupe has his theme park and going again with the spectacle of it all you know theme parks um so it's like that's exactly like what that sound design sounds like and it's it's so fucking good it's also really fucking disgusting when it like the sound the sign wow the sounds of the screaming are just silenced and it's just like completely quiet because he just like gulped them all up it's like ah it's fucking so spooky (laughs) yeah And, and there's the moments too when um when jean jacket comes around and obviously it affects the the uh electronic um grid around everything and yeah and it and it really makes you realize like how much sound like all your electronics are making because then even when the power goes off everything is just so much quieter which is a yeah. really cool detail so great yeah, yeah i love me some spooky like uh, technology gurgles almost <laughs> like it's <laughs> i'm so into it all the time it's like it I brought it up before. It's very signs with the walkie-talkie with, like, mm-hmm. where they're, like, reaching the sky and all of a sudden you hear the fucking, like, crazy alien sounds and then you're, yeah. like, everything is, like, this chills. Love it. I'm so stoked to be talking about M. Night Shyamalan soon. Like, I'm very excited. <laughs> oh, yes. We get a whole month on the Sham Hammer. I cannot wait for Let's that. Yes. And uh but yeah, the so so many uh, good, like, sound, sound design elements and stuff and then, um... But then, yeah. So when when this uh, when the the adventure part comes together, I love uh, again like uh, the the ingenuity of the plans. Like you said, like I, I do love me a good plan montage, and all the best animal attack movies have them. Tremors. Half that movie is plan montages. <laughs> so so like when you when you got that, because um, I saw I even saw uh, somebody tweet out like. Uh, saying like oh once i saw them break out the 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 waving inflatable guys that's when i lost uh any interest or credibility in this i'm like what are you talking about that's genius 
I was like, that was a good plan with the car batteries and the inflatables. I was like, that's a that's a good ass plan. It also looks cool, and it's also another reference to Jaws because like when he eats those things, the, and they're the like buoys, hanging out yeah. of it, the, the buoys. Like, come on, you're scrubs. Speaking of which, like you you didn't mention the uh, the Rotten Tomatoes score at the beginning of this, and it's got like a measly like sixty nine percent audience score, <laughs> which is like watching it is just like. I, I just, it's one of those movies that I'm just like, it might not be your thing, but to say that this movie is rotten, it's like, you guys are on crack. This movie's fucking sick. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine giving this a, a negative score, even if, like, again, like, it's not exactly the movie I wanted, but I can still recognize, like, no, everything about this is just so damn well made. Like, I, I can't really fathom it either. So that is a, uh, like I, I kind of figured that this would end up having one of the more higher ones between the three, but uh, yeah, fascinating because that's even lower than us. Yeah, and I thought us was like it's interesting. I thought the response for us seemed like divisive, and this one seemed a little more unanimous. But I guess not. People are lame out here, Devon. I don't know what to tell you. They really are. <laughs> they have no taste. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and yeah, but I, I love, yeah, like, I mean, we get, we get them on walkie talkies working together and like really the, the chemistry of this cast is just so good. Like the way that oh my God. Brandon Perea just like really slides into them and like, yeah. you know, and, uh, love that, like, you know, he didn't have to be a love interest for M either. Like, no, like he literally just becomes homies with them. Uh, because he just had this sense that he like should help them. Like obviously he was like interested because you know he was he, he's a conspiracy alien guy. But um, but I love that he just like kind of he just sinks right in with them and you know is really just helping them out of the goodness of his heart. Again, yeah. Angel, Good Boy of the Year nominee. Uh, I love him. Yeah. I. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna add. I, I nominated him for breakout performance at my for my critic circle, the Austin uh, Critics Association, and he nice. didn't make it, and I was very sad. That's a bummer. <laughs> oh, damn. But That's you know who did make it? Kiki Palmer did. So, but not for Breakout for actress. I was obviously. about to say, I was like, Breakout. She's been doing this shit for since I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Right. I was about to say, I was like, she already tossed the box aside. Like she's been out. But uh, but yeah, Bram Prey, uh, really, really talented. If you uh, follow him on Instagram, he can also roller skate and break dance. No this way. Is, no is, way. This kid's yeah. gonna be a star. It's gonna be a star. I, I had a chance. Uh, I was in line at a movie theater, and he was behind me. We were at the concession line, and I was like, "Hey, man, Nope's fucking dope." And he's like, "Thank you so much." So he he seems to be a really uh, sweet, genuine guy. So I want the world for him because, yeah, you're right. He's so good in this. Like, it's one of those performances. I guess more roles that is kind of a gamble. You know, he easily mm -hmm. could be like, "I was really into these two, but then this fuck knuckle comes along and is just like ruins the whole vibe." You know, but thankfully he's like super funny, really sweet, really genuine and doesn't you know mess up the the you know the good thing that is going with Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer they're a mm -hmm. sure bet but like kind of now throwing in this wrench into the movie who's he's there for quite a lot of it you know yeah. it, mm -hmm. it's quite a gamble so it's definitely a testament to how good his performance is in this do you think it was purposeful that Daniel and Kiki are but were both cast and they both kind of started on television like that was their big breaks like Ooh. i don't know what kiki was in i know she's a disney star right she but was nickelodeon Daniel. oh nickelodeon okay yeah, uh but a, uh, she was a, a true jackson vp that's it <laughs> uh but daniel did skins 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Brandon yeah. Perea uh, was also on the OA. So, yeah, he's definitely oh. got some. Uh, maybe it's just like kind of the, the, the TV to movie pipeline in Hollywood. You know, you're you're probably going to book one of those before you book a, a big old, you know, real fancy motion picture, you know. Mm-hmm. I'll say going back around the second time because so here's the thing. I love Kiki Palmer. She is very charming. Emerald. At, in the first half, I mean, I know she's meant to be, but man, she like I, I get why there's tension between her and OJ in that first half because like she is uh, a lot, but she she gets her arc. But I'll say on this rewatch though, uh, OJ his character Daniel Kaluuya's performance, like again, like he is you know kind of making a name for himself with these very quiet performances. Honestly, I think he's almost doing more here than he was doing in Get Out because there's such a change in him. One, like, you know, he's very pensive. He's to himself. I've seen people uh, make reads of him being neurodivergent, possibly. I could kind of see that. Or I could also just see him being a very terminal introvert, you know, and and you see that he's, you know, not good with, like, the people stuff and he's not great at interacting with people and the way he conversates. But then, like, as soon as he realizes that Jean Jacket is, or that the, that's not a ship, that it is an actual creature, and he starts learning its tendencies, he starts talking way more than he was in the first one. He gets confidence. Um, he he's he's cracking more jokes and like you know saying like little one liners here and there. Like there there's such a stark change in his performance between the first half and the second half that I've really appreciated. Yeah, and I think it's it's again it's kind of this other thing of like, well, you don't want these two leads after the death of their father to be zipping and zagging with you know one liners yeah. and yeah. like Kiki Palmer is enough. Like she <laughs> she fills that quota and you know it's even overflowing. So yeah, I think having Daniel Kaluuya coming and you know throwing jokes around would probably not be my pick but i think you're right that once he does realize that this is an animal and he is able to train it like he has for you know years and years now with his father i think it does not only kind of you know make him feel a little bit more familiar but also i maybe feels him makes him feel a little nostalgic of this time with his dad which he no longer gets to really have anymore but now he gets to have it with his sister yeah oh yeah i totally felt that because like in the second half, too, like, especially, like you said, like, them rekindling, like, their connection between them, like, they felt so, so real as siblings. Like, again, like, the tension at the beginning felt real because you felt where OJ was coming from in his frustrations with her. Um, but then, you, like you said, like, you see him, like, finally being like, okay, yeah, this isn't the way I expected reconnecting with my sister, but, you know, he is embracing it. And he's also embracing, like, the Western cowboy archetype a little bit more in the second half only for it still then to be subverted and Kiki get the, you know, true cowboy hero moment at the end as well. Well, he gets one too. He rolls oh, into yeah, town he and he's oh, the lone man on the horse, you know. It's pretty fucking, it's 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 pretty on the nose. <laughs> I, I saw theories. I saw some theories and I don't know, like watching it the second time around, do you guys think OJ actually died at the end and she was envisioning him at the end? Because at the end, whenever, after she's, taking the picture there's sounds of reporters and stuff in the background saying like reporting like the news that's going on but when she opens her eyes it's just oj there and we didn't we don't see jean jacket suck him up but i I don't know i at first i thought the theory was bullshit but then on this rewatch i was like because once i heard the reporter stuff in the background and then she closes her eyes and she opens it and he's there 
I, I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it's definitely an interpretation that I feel could have been purposeful on Peel's point, but I, I, I think he's alive. I mean, it's, it's like perfectly on the line. I'll give it that. I, I, yeah, it's like the spinning top. <laughs> what do you yeah, think, Garrett? I, I just more think of like the type of filmmaker that Jordan Peele is, and it speaks volumes that with the ending of Get Out, he went with the ending where his buddy comes and he's in the cop car and he rescues him, not the one where he gets fucking incarcerated. And it's like, that's the more realistic ending. So I think uh, I think Daniel Kaluuya and or I, I think Jordan Peele is a filmmaker that really wants to give that sort of like rousing kind of more feel good ending and not really be as much of a bummer. And I also I, I could be wrong, but I feel like Jordan Peele has also addressed it. And he's like, no, he's alive. I wasn't like, you know, fooling you. He's actually alive. I don't think it adds much to the story for him to be fucking dead other than like a little depressing that he sacrificed himself. But yeah. uh, I sure would like to see him back alive. You I mean, know? I don't think it would have added much, but I think it would have also brought a little more weight to um there's a line that Antler said um whenever um before he goes, he goes, We don't deserve the impossible. And that's what mm-hmm. he says before he goes off to go get the you know, yeah. shot from inside, um, knowing what he was gonna do. So it's like that's the only reason that it also kind of made me think about more because it was like, Okay, like yeah, she's about to she got the picture, she's about to have all this fame and fortune, but like okay her but what did she lose to get that you know so on one hand it kind of would have almost made sense that it's like yeah she's gonna get all that but you know it took (laughs) her brother (laughs) it took her brother sacrificing himself for that so it's like yeah so i don't know if it would if it would add take away but i at first i was just i I thought it was fascinating at first i thought the theory was total bullshit i was like no that's silly but then once i saw it again i was like huh i don't know i don't know you know me i you know i love my theories yeah, I yeah, I definitely want OJ to survive because he, he deserves it, you know? He deserves it. I think the question that I more have, like, and I, I think it, it is also kind of a case of, like, I don't know, are you a half-glass-full glass kind of person? But, like, I, I also think that this is the type of film that when it ends, I'm like, yeah, they got that picture, but does anyone really fucking care? Like, is anyone going to believe them? Because, I don't know, I, I think that if I saw that online, I'd be like, what is it? Uh, it's probably fucking fake and then just move on, you know? <laughs> it does have that, like, appeal of fakeness. But, I mean, that's also just because it's a movie and I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, we've uh, we've talked quite a bit. And I'll also say this might be one of the episodes where we've kind of talked about the movie not as much and uh, the things around. But I also love these conversations, too, because uh, they're, they're, this is what we do as nerds. We love to uh, geek out about these things. Um, but let's go ahead and uh, get into our final thoughts here, and we'll give this a rating of uh, 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 five. Uh, what did I clouds? Put in the five clouds. Five, five clouds. Five horses. Five. You got. Oh, you I had. Oh, I from. had five upright shoes because we didn't talk about the upright shoe. Oh, oh, but, uh, we can talk about it. <laughs> I'll make it. I'll make it quick because I know we've got a, an out time here. Uh, I I think it's a metaphor for not only like the strange and unusual and just kind of like this kind of dreamlike quality of those sequences but i also think that peel's making a statement and it's very literal of like kind of waiting for the shoe to drop so to speak uh that's kind of how i read it but it's also just fucking weird (laughs) 
Yeah, I I had it as like that is the bad miracle. Like there there was the line, you know, what's a bad miracle that kind of went around and the the shoe for me I'm like it's it's that. Like, you know, like it's just that random strange unlikely thing that ended up happening during this, you know, batshit events. Like, oh, look at all this crazy shit going on, but then you know somebody pulled up to that like crime scene and they go Hey, but check out the shoe, you know. So it's like, so <laughs> I want to see like, that one fucking deputy who yeah. rolls up to this crime scene and everyone's massacred. And he's like, "Hey, <laughs> hey, Sarge, look at the shoe." <laughs> yes. I mean, th- I think that's totally spot on. It's like someone like because Jupe holds on to that, so like he clings to that almost as like that was a that was a sign that was a sign and mm-hmm. but was it? What if it was just physics or just happened. weird? It's it's it's, it's like the happened. the broom thing. Uh, yes. When you when you when you can stand up the broom at at the weird angle, it's pretty much that. Well, I think you just kind of you just said it, Devon is like, oh, is it this amazing spectacle, bad miracle kind of thing? It's like, or this monkey just fucking killed a lot of people. Like it's just this thing that happened. You know, I think yeah. that that's definitely a totally totally valid uh, read on that. Yeah. So out of out of uh, five upright shoes, Jenny, what are you giving? Nope. Uh, for preface this is like one of my favorite movies of the year but i'm a very harsh critic and i never give things five so i'm gonna give this four upright shoes out of five okay okay that's fair um i would encourage you jenny to open up your heart give it a five <laughs> yeah give it a five for me i'll, I, I'll, I'll tell you this, i'll give it a four and a half <laughs> not, there you go not to not to keep us or derail any further but yeah for me it's like a five is like was there anything significant in this film that detracted from my enjoyment? No. Or yes, you know. So, like, it's not to say that it's a perfect movie. That's almost like an A+, plus, you know, to where it's like, if it's an A and I really liked the movie, then, you know, and there's nothing that significant that made me dislike it, then go ahead. Give it a 10. It feels good when it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, for myself, though, I would say that, yeah, this would be a 9 on its way to a 10. I could totally see this being a 10 for me. I just have to watch it some more times like i am very looking very much so looking forward um to seeing this again um and i yeah this is one i definitely want to own from last year but as of right now it's a nine but hey it's sprouting up and it's it's it was an eight last time so you know by the math next time it should be a 10 i want to preface that i do on the five scale like it is not a five out of ten for me it's like it's like a 4.5 out of five oh my god okay (laughs) we we typically do five also and uh and i'm also a I, I've gotten more conservative with my fives over the years because I, 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 I give them out to ones that like obviously like the personal lovey ones end up getting them regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I'm putting my, my, my critic hat on, I've, I've tried to tighten up a little bit. But um, this did improve from the first time I saw it. Um, so going up from a three and a half up to a four out of five for me. Um, again, because even the complaints that I do have aren't knocks against the movie it's just things that i would would have preferred you know like for certain things to go in certain directions but for what was given to me for what jordan peele wanted yeah like it there, there's not too much that i can knock besides maybe uh some pacing structural issues here and there um and, uh, and a couple other like little things but um, but yeah, I very much appreciate the characters on a second time around, um, a lot more of the smaller details and there's still, yeah, so many big ideas going on, but at the end of the day, it also is just a very 
fun. It was a very fun watch again. Like I, I was excited and then I kind of forgot how long it actually was. I was like, oh shit, this is a nice little hefty movie. That's all right. And this is a good time. So yeah. Um, yeah. So this did go up a score for me, unlike last week when I had it go down. So uh, Nope is up a score for me. And uh, we, got a, we got a pretty good average score going across the board. But uh, let's go ahead and see what other movies we were thinking about when we were talking about Nope. All righty, here on the Spectre Cinema Club, we like to conclude all of our episodes by playing a game. Uh, it's called Movie Math. Uh, Jenny, the rules are simple. You just have to take some movies, and you can put them in an equation. Uh, you just got to add, multiply, divide, um, whatever you choose. Just has to uh, equal the movie that we talked about today. So what movies were on your brain while watching? Nope. Get ready for my really complex equation. We love it. We it. love complicated right. math. I when you gave me this and I, you said I could go crazy with it, I was like, I'm going crazy. All right, in brackets. There we go. Oh, uh, we got brackets. That's a new one. Uh, Jaws times in parentheses, Close Encounters plus signs and parentheses and the bracket. Uh, plus Buck and the Preacher. Okay. Divided all by, in parentheses, get out, get out times us. Because I wanted to kind of add both of his films and kind of like, because people compare them all the time. The division part is like, mm-hmm. to each their own, how they want to like have that. Yeah. So I kind of like thought of that weird, I don't know if that's how it's supposed to be. That's exactly but. how it works. And you that you had the parentheses work out in the brackets perfectly. Like you you have a fully formed equation here. I love it. And, and it's funny because uh, we've obviously talked about a lot of these movies throughout. And I think uh, we kind of all have uh, similar films in our equation, but just in uh, different orders. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, when you were like, this is a complicated one. I was like, we'll see. And then, wow, like, holy shit. That, the, the, you said, so in brackets. And I was like, well, fuck. All right. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my equation is also uh, got some parentheses and stuff involved, a little bit more streamlined. And yeah, we, we talked about, I think, all of these films today. Um, so in parentheses, I have Close Encounters of the Third Kind for that kind of like, obviously, yes, aliens, but also there is, like, an obsession in that film uh, with Richard Dreyfuss's character and, like, what that does to him. There's also a lot of, like, themes of family and fatherhood in that that are definitely present um, in this movie as well. Um, I'm adding that with Jaws for obvious reasons. You just listen to the episode, you know why. Uh, (laughs) And then I've got those all multiplied by Tremors because that is also kind of like this... When we uh, multiply, it's usually for vibe, but I think Tremors also has this, like, desert western sort of, there's this creature out here we're trying to plan and navigate how best to handle the situation. So, yeah, I I think all of our math definitely checks out, and we're all kind of, like, circling the same sort of movies. So, uh, what about you, Devon? Oh yeah, I, I approve of that. I love Tremors. Um, we yeah. I did a I did a solo episode of the podcast uh, talking Tremors and Anaconda back in the early days of the pod, and that is actually like one of the episodes I'm like the most like high and slightly drunk. So go listen <laughs> to that episode. It's a it's a great time. But love Tremors, and uh, yeah. So I got I got a few ones um, that we've mentioned and some that are in your guys' equation. So in parentheses for me um i have signs uh which we uh kind of talked about here and there a little bit and um 
part of it, you know, you have this family kind of dealing with grief and trauma, but then also just this unimaginable thing and them trying to kind of wrap their heads around it and this uh, event that brings them closer together again as a family and obviously aliens. Um, And then I have that added with Twister. Uh, This movie has big Twister energy of, uh, I mean, they are basically trying to chase down a tornado is what they're doing with Jean Jacket here. So uh, specifically the the third act of the movie is heavy on the Twister vibes and also just um, the, uh, the, the characters and their chemistry, like, because uh, Twister does a really good job of, like, you know, you got the camera crew, you got the sound people, and, like, and the the way that they all kind of see the situations differently, uh, depending on what their role is within it. Um, Twister, super fun movie. Um, and so I have those added together in parentheses, and then I have that multiplied also by Jaws, because... Yeah, you, you, you did hear you did hear us uh, mention Jaws quite a bit throughout this episode, and uh, I mean the structure-wise, character-wise, some of the same themes-ish. Um, yeah, so so that is mine. So Twister plus signs in parentheses multiplied by Jaws. You know, I found out what this movie is missing to make it a full ten, and that's like some big Philip Seymour Hoffman energy. Like that's the <laughs> that's the puzzle piece that's missing in this. Like. God, I miss that man. <laughs> yeah, we 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 could have used we could have used uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman or a uh, or a John Voight's character in Anaconda. <laughs> we needed we got a gravelly voice. We didn't have uh, somebody doing a mysterious uh, unregional uh, accent in. <laughs> Oh man, but yeah. So that was a. I'm I'm glad we got to uh, have this conversation because again, it turned me around a little bit on it, and uh, and another opportunity to hype up another uh, great movie from this past year. So Jenny, thank you so much for coming on and chatting. Nope, with us. Um, what are you working on right now? Where can the people find you online? Um, yeah, I have a lot of stuff right now, uh, but you can find me online at Jenny Lee X33. That's Jenny with a Y, Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H, and that's pretty much across every platform, Letterboxd, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Serialized, which is a TV, like, Letterboxd, uh, which I love, uh, that only, like, 10 people are on. Interesting. Um, I have a Fangoria article out right now where I did a profile on Junji Ito. Uh, I work at Alamo Drafthouse and do the repertory programming. So I have my hands in a lot of that. And uh, currently I'm specifically working on the World of Animation series. So a lot of the animated retrospective stuff, that that's me. Um, and uh, I write for the Austin Chronicle uh, monthly. So you can check me out there if you online or if you live in Austin, you can pick up a free Austin Chronicle at the grocery store or wherever you find them. They're everywhere. (laughs) You are everywhere. Busy Bee gets the honey. And we will have all of that uh, links in the description as always. Garrett, what are you working on right now? Oh, I'm not nearly as busy, uh, but you guys can follow me on uh, Twitter as well as uh, uh, TikTok and Letterboxd just at Garrett McDowell. Um, watching movies when I have time and generally talking about them on either one of those uh, platforms. Uh, if you want some more podcast goodness, uh, I've got a Star Wars podcast uh, called Scum and Villainy. Uh, if you're into that kind of stuff, we'd love to have you over there. And yeah, I'm also not as busy right now, but um, when this goes up, I believe um, the horror panel discussion on the Incinerator podcast will be up so you can go over there. And uh, listen to me talk about some more of my top 10 horrors, which have been reshuffled around a little bit since uh, we did our episode. So you won't just hear the same thing. So go listen to that. 
And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore daddy disco, as well as uh, Letterboxd. And you can find uh, the, uh, um, and you can also find me on Tumblr at Specter Daddy. But really, it's just for the podcast. It's, um, but Tumblr, we're we're coming back. It's coming back, y'all. I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it until it is back. Um, it, all these other social media platforms sprung up, and people already forgot about them. Tumblr's still there, y'all. <laughs> Tumblr's still there. But that'll go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Spectre Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Subscribe to not miss a thing. You can follow us on social media at Spectre Cinema on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars, a nice little review. We appreciate you. But until next time, guys, stay lifted.